In today's podcast, I was joined by Jason Sobel. Jason has reported on the PGA Tour full-time since 2004, working for ESPN, the Golf Channel, and most recently in his current role with the Action Network. Jason shares some great insight into his career in golf media in the past and talks about the PGA Tour and the United States as a whole starting to accommodate golf betting in an official capacity after years of it being somewhat of a taboo subject. Jason had some great insight into his past golf media career and also what he expects of the future and how he expects betting to be a big part of it as well. I'll be too nervous though. I'll probably be lost for words. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Lost Words Podcast. I'm joined today by Jason Sobel. Jason has worked for ESPN, the Golf Channel, and now most recently the Action Network. Uh, Jason, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. How are things going over there? Yeah, it's uh, as you know, as you see in America, it's a crazy time at the moment, all around the world as it is. But uh, I think we're two countries that have kind of been uh, hit the hardest, maybe. And uh, it's mm. kind of trying to keep things in perspective and just be grateful that... Uh, we can sit here and have these conversations rather than anything else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's good that we're healthy, obviously, both of us, and, you know, certainly uh, wishing everybody uh, the best of, of health and, and staying that way. And it's, it's great that we're able to watch and talk about golf right now. I mean, I, I still feel a little kind of iffy about everything. You know, just playing golf uh, professionally in a global pandemic where guys are playing for millions of dollars every every week just – there's something that feels a little strange about it. And yet if it gives everybody sort of something to take your mind off of what's going on in the world, if it gives you a form of entertainment, if it gives, uh, gives all of us kind of, um, keeps us working and keeps us, you know, uh, uh, doing other things. And I, I obviously have no problems with it and, you know, I've been loving what's going on, but it still feels like every, the world just feels very strange right now. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there is that the first um, impression everyone had was, right, let's get golf back because it will keep people entertained while they're at home and, and, keep, and lift spirits, isn't it? But as you say there, that whilst everyone's kind of worried about money and, and their health and things like that, there's millions of dollars being exchanged for a 72-hole golf tournament. So it is... It is hard to see what side it's on. And also, as we're welcoming back other sports, um, you know, we've had a few blips in the road with positive tests on the, on the PGA, but it's been generally okay. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing with baseball now, and, and basketball just got started again last night, that it really does seem to be that maybe we, when we look back in six months' time, it might be that we were really fortunate that golf even went ahead. If the NFL season doesn't go ahead, for example, it's going to be really weird to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know that there's a right or a wrong answer to this uh, based on what we've seen in Major League Baseball. I'm guessing that having a bubble is uh, seems like it's working a whole lot more than not having a bubble. Um, I really like what the European Tour has done where players can drive to events and they're able to kind of maintain that bubble more so than uh, air travel throughout uh, throughout the entire country and throughout the, uh, the continent over there in Europe. But um, I, the PGA Tour... I, I guess is doing a good job. I I have a hard time, Tom, of saying that uh, the PGA Tour is doing a great job because there have been very few cases or that the PGA Tour, uh, you know, conversely, would have been doing a poor job if there were more cases. This is sort of what they're supposed to do. They're testing all the time. The first test case, Nick Watney, happened on a Friday morning at Harbortown where he said, hey, I don't feel great. And probably the best thing that the PGA Tour has done is not just – hey, we have testing on site Tuesday when you get there, get tested, and then 
all the people who do the testing go home and we should be good for the week. I, I think the best <laughs> thing that they did was keep all the testing there and available throughout the week so that if a player either felt sick or felt, you know, had a, a whoop uh, blip and, you know, felt that their breathing was a little bit off, they could go get tested. And so um, I, it feels like with each positive case, there really hasn't been one in a few weeks now, but with each positive case on the PGA Tour, it's not necessarily, well, I don't know if they should be out there. This is a bad thing. It's more, well, isn't that what's supposed to happen is one guy gets it. They find it very quickly. They remove him from that bubble, and everyone else stays safe and and remains not exposed and, and can continue to play. I mean, that's kind of how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the focus has been on has these positive cases come from people that have had a week off or have, have stepped outside of the rules or gone out and eaten in restaurants and things like that it's impossible yeah. really it's not like the nba where they've gone down to orlando and they're all they're all housed in the same facility and that sort of stuff at the end of the day there's travel isn't they yes we can we can stop people meeting up for lunch and things like that but these people are sharing houses don't know who's been in the houses beforehand it's very difficult and i think they are doing a good job but like you say is is are they just doing what they should be doing and we're about to find out. I think. I think it's a good, good move. They've definitely decided no fans at uh, the, the upcoming events. I think the Masters will probably follow suit pretty soon. I'd imagine, which is going to be tough for the actual event itself. But you know, from a from a personal standpoint and from an outside looking in, it feels like a, a no-brainer, really. You know, Tom, I generally like human beings. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm in favor of the the human <laughs> population as a whole. Uh, you know, there's some I don't care for that much, but. Um, and not seeing human beings outside the ropes of the golf tournament has not hurt my enjoyment of it whatsoever. <laughs> and in fact, I, I, I almost crossed the line and say it, it might be better without uh, fans yelling Baba Booey and mashed potatoes <laughs> and silly things like that. The pace of play seems like it's a lot better. Just, you know, even if it's not fans being unruly, it's just, hey, you know, one player doesn't have to wait for the applause to die down and people stop moving around. So I feel like there's a better rhythm and tempo to events. Um, yes, we all hope that we can get back to some sense of normalcy and, and that people can attend PGA Tour events and other golf events at some point in the very near future because that means we're moving forward in the world. But for now, if they're going to play golf and if they have to play golf without fans there, quite frankly, I just it, it's not really... Um, hurting my enjoyment personally of it. And I, I haven't heard many people unless you specifically had tickets. If you live in the Bay Area and you had tickets for the PGA Championship next week and now you're stuck with tickets and you can't go and you're trying to figure out how to get a refund, I, I get it. You know, that stinks. You probably planned uh, vacation time around that. And, it, you know, that's awful. But it's also not the worst thing going on in the world right now. If that's your biggest problem, then you don't have you're too okay. many problems. Yeah. To, and, you know, it's as far as the rest of us, the 99.99% of golf fans who are watching on TV and not on site, it's just, like I said, not hurting the enjoyment factor whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I'm exactly the same as you. The first podcast we did for the first or the second podcast we did after seeing the first tournament, I said that I actually preferred as a viewer on television uh, the experience without fans. I don't need... I don't need, the, as you say, the bababooey shouts, the mashed potatoes, the the overly long applause for something that, you know, at the end of the day, yes, okay, there's dramatic shots, which would sound better if there was an applause around there. I think some players thrive off of it. Um, but at the end of the day, the pace of play is a big thing for me. We, we say we, all these players get criticised for how slow they are. 
but they have to wait for uh, applause to stop. They have to wait for galleries to be moved out of the way. And I think they're finally getting the chance to to show that, okay, it's not all down to them. There is so many moving parts in that. Absolutely. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, maybe some of the more popular players who, who are playing with guys who are popular as well and have big crowds supporting them, which is great on a regular basis. But, hey, now they're just three guys or two guys on the weekend playing golf, and it, they can move at a pretty good pace. And you're right, you know, sometimes there are dramatic moments. I mean, it would have been pretty cool that Workday Charity Open where Justin Thomas and Colin Morikawa got into the playoff and JT rolls in a 50-footer, Morikawa rolls in a 20, 25-footer on top of them. It might have been really cool to, to hear the reaction from the fans, but can't you almost hear that in your mind? I feel like I can, you know, if I'm watching on TV, I, I know what the reaction is going to be. When JT's putt drops in, it's, you know, this great, you know, big roar and applause and like a three-minute crescendo of just, you know, a crazy reaction. And Morikawa waits for it to die down and he rolls his in. And, you know, there's, you know, more applause and adulation. I just, I, you can almost sense it in your mind if you've watched golf long enough, I think. Yeah, I mean, like you say there, my reaction to what happened to, to JT and Morikawa there was exactly the same, whether I saw people on TV or not. When Tiger Woods won the Masters last year and, and all this, you know, the massive pandemonium around us. But I just focus on his reaction and he's still going to react in the same way. Okay, he may not, it may be slightly less dramatic, but there's going to be fist bumps, there's going to be tears, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be players congratulating him. I just think that, yes, like you say, the locals that can't go to these events, they plan to. I mean, I was due to attend the Open Championship this year. It's just down the road from my house and that's obviously been mm -hmm. moved to next year. Um, I wasn't sad at all. At the end of the day, I'm... Like you say, that's the worst thing that's happened to me this year. I can't go to the Open Championship. Then I'm a pretty right. happy man. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I've got something to look forward to next year now that I didn't think I was going to. So, yeah, I think I think we're both on the same page there. I think. How would you have felt if you were still, you know, at the Golf Channel or ESPN reporting on the golf? I mean, these guys are, you know, not getting the same access as they were before. But would you have felt uneasy traveling to these events? Yeah. So I mean, I'm still covering in, in a normal year. I'm still covering. 16 18 20 events and you know obviously with a, a different lean on things than uh in the past but still still kind of the same still covering golf tournaments still going out there and talking to players maybe we're having a little bit different conversations than i would have been having when i was with espn or golf channel so I, i've talked to my bosses about uh traveling i have sort of raised a little bit of a red flag and say look you know if if you guys really want me there i will do it if you need me there, I will do whatever you want me to do. If you don't necessarily need me there, and if you don't want me there, and you know, if it's saving money in the budget, and you know, we're we're a, a sports media company that's getting hit hard, obviously, from not having any sports for the last three or four months, and so um, if it helps to you know save money in the budget, or just you know, it's a better look to not have me traveling when we're um, cutting back in other departments then i'm perfectly fine not traveling so we've had that conversation and um you know i yes i would do it if i had to and i i've spoken with colleagues who have been on the road and it just it doesn't sound like it's a very uh it's certainly not a fun experience i'm not sure it's a very uh eye-opening experience uh, either I, I just don't know how much you can garner from it being a journalist out on the road right now because quite frankly you can't talk to players they don't let you talk to players on the road right now if you you know if you want to go up to brooks kepka 
during his and they're not playing programs, but during a practice round on Wednesday and start talking to him like that, they'll, they'll put the kibosh on that very quickly. They won't let you do it. So um, basically, the only way you get players is the same way you get them at home, which is on a video conference call, which works great, and you can ask questions, but you don't necessarily need to be on site. You don't need to be 20 yards away from the player to ask that question. You can be across the country. And so um, that doesn't seem to uh, to affect anything. And, uh, and then there's the rest of it. I mean, I spoke with a colleague who said he basically went to McDonald's and got uh, takeout from McDonald's every single night on the road while covering an event, went back to his hotel at night and sat in the room eating takeout McDonald's until the next morning when he woke up and went to the course and put on a mask and sat in the media center and did the exact same thing all over again, which to me, it just doesn't feel like uh, the juice is worth the squeeze, to use a uh, cliched term. It's just not quite worth it, I guess. You know, I get I, I get a lot of stuff. My, my favorite part of being at events is you go and work the range a little bit. You know, there's 80 guys on the range. You start, you talk to a caddy, you talk to a coach, you talk to a couple of players. All of a sudden, like they, one guy tells you a story about this. You go talk to another guy about it. Next thing you know, you're like, man, this is great. I've got a really good story. One that I wouldn't have gotten by sitting at home. And right now, I don't think you're able to get those stories as a journalist by being on site anyway. And so I'm okay with being at home because I don't feel like I'm getting beat on stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing, isn't it? If, you, if it's a fear of missing out type of thing, then then absolutely you, you know, you'd wish you were there. But And I guess the massive part of the, the, the job that you really enjoy when you're reporting golf is these players do tend to be happy to have meals with, with reporters and, and to meet up and have a few drinks, but that's just not happening now. So, you know, like you say, the questions that you need to ask at the end of a, a tournament to fulfill your, um, you know, the column and things like that, you can ask those, you know, over, over you know, online things and, and that way. So I don't really feel that there is no any need for reporters to be there on site. Uh, there are some there, um, but just angling a, a microphone from ten feet away almost seems as impersonal as doing a video call. Uh, yeah, I, there's a lot of things that are impersonal about. It. I'm going to be doing live interviews for PGA Tour Radio, post round interviews uh, for the radio coverage of PGA Championship next week. I will be in the Orlando Broadcast Center, so I will be three thousand miles away from TPC Harding Park, <laughs> and yet. Uh, from all my assumptions and from what I've been told, they will, you know, like Rory McIlroy shoots 66 in the opening round. They will bring him over to a microphone where they tell him, okay, now you're going to do, uh, do something for the radio broadcast and he will see me on a screen or maybe just hear me. And I will ask him questions about his round. And yes, I, I think you lose some of that personal interaction. I think, you know, especially if you can't see each other, you lose some of the subtleties of, you know, hey, wink, wink, I'm, I'm giving you a little sarcastic question here, and you can answer it with a little smile. Uh, I think you lose some of those subtleties, but I also think the world is going to change a whole lot, Tom. And this is, you know, way beyond the golf world, but uh, I just think that people are going to get used to, um, you know, whether it's in our little space, covering events and um, from around the world and not necessarily being right there. And, you know, I extending way beyond this i mean I, I think it's gonna be normal for your late night talk shows to instead of you know have a a guest who's promoting a movie being in studio uh you know their their studios in la the guest is in new york they get on a conference call 
and they talk for 10 minutes and it will just look normal to the audience because I think we're all just getting so used to uh, that type of situation right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, golf media has actually already taken a massive change, probably from when you started coming out of college uh, for ESPN, that, you know, a lot of it was written and there was a lot of blogs and, and articles and things like that, and then it's turned to a, you know, an audio format, a podcast and things like that. So it's already made a change as it is, and it's almost going to go even more to another extreme as as we come out the other side of this pandemic because they realise what you can do um, from a from an audio perspective and from, a, you know, a conference call type of thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, you know, and I can get into um, sort of how I got into this, this uh, world, this job. But um, when I first started, I, I was a, an editor, and I was an editor with a writing background. And so I started writing a little bit, and I was doing both jobs. And I never wanted to be on TV. I never wanted anyone to hear my voice. I never, you know, the whole point of being a writer back then, I mean, we're talking 16 years ago, the whole point of being a writer was so I didn't have to talk to anyone, and they didn't have to see me. And obviously, the world, uh, uh, the media world has evolved so much since then that um, the writing almost takes a backseat to everything else. We do a, a live uh, betting preview show every Wednesday night that's supported and promoted by the PGA Tour. And uh, I do podcasts, obviously, and um, there, there's so much else to it that um, the writing is almost like, you know, that's kind of, you know, that, that's the other stuff, you know, and I still love that part of it. I probably love that part of it the most. I, I just wrote a column last night that's uh, incredibly silly and really stupid and hopefully funny and will be up in the next couple of days. But um, it, it's just, you know, I, I love that part of it. But yeah, if it, you can't anymore. And I, I have people ask me all the time, Tom, you know, college kids, I, I really like golf and I really like journalism. I want to do what you do. I said, first of all, you, you can't plan it that way. If you're If you're planning a job as a golf journalist it's just such a small narrow window that um you're probably doing it wrong i said you know if you want to work in golf great if you want to be a journalist that's great um but trying to narrow it down to golf journalist is just too narrow of a window right now and and then i tell people you know and you better be good with everything you, you better you know you can't just be a good writer you have to be a good writer but you can't just be a good writer you need to be able to speak about it you need to be able to speak about it into a camera you need to be able to, you know, if someone says, hey, I need 30 seconds on this and a minute and a half on that and then five minutes on this, you need to be able to figure out how to speak in different lengths where you can get your point across in, in five minutes and stretch it out or get your point across very quickly in 30 seconds. You need to be able to do social media. So there's, there's so many different moving parts and variables to it. And I'm sure that if we have this conversation again three, five, ten years from now, that it's going to change, you know, uh, another 180 degrees from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you say there, it's funny you talk about college kids there because I'll go back sort of five or six years maybe, and I, and I was doing a weekly preview on betting, which has been a, a lot more welcomed over here in England as opposed to the United States. And uh, and my thought was, okay, well, I want to get into golf journalism, so I would approach, you know, a few golf digest writers, a few, you know, golf world writers, and say, you know, what do I need to do? And that. And the same answer was like, look, the things you're producing are good, um, but it's not enough. You know, it's it's not a, a thing that's easy to get into. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I found that difficult to deal with. I, you know, I really wanted to do it, but I had no formal qualifications in it. I didn't go to college to do it. It was kind of a, a hobbyist thing. And in, in the end, I had Ooh. to kind of accept that that was the case. And uh, and then, you know, fast forward five or six years now, I've, I've launched a podcast. And, and for me, that it's given me a chance because I think like you talk there, you know, you have to be good at breaking down into one minute, five minute. I'm 
best when I think I've got an hour's time to kind of elaborate on points and things like that. And that's that's an art form in itself. But being able to do these succinct videos and 30 second clips, one minute clips is is where yourself and, and other people in your industry really uh, go another level to others. So it was really good to get that insight. And, you know, you, you went to uh, university, uh, I believe, it was, was it in Boston that you went to university? Yes, just outside of Boston. Yeah, and yep. uh, and, you, and you were writing for the Boston Globe and Newsday while you were there, and and that was how you got your first start, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I can even go back a little bit further than this. So I was, uh, I, you know, grew up like, like so many others. You know, hey, I really like sports, and you know, I kind of knew by the time I was a teenager, like I'm probably not going pro in anything. So <laughs> uh, I guess the next best thing is to be able to watch sports for a living, and so kind of knew that that was the direction I wanted to go. I always liked writing, and so. I uh, got my first assignment when I was 15 years old, uh, covering a shark tournament, sharking tournament, I guess it is. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew nothing about it. I still know nothing about it. But um, and, and I use this as an example when I talk to college kids sometimes of, you know, you, the job is going to be at some point writing about something of which you have no expertise. And so it it's important to, first of all, listen more than you talk, uh, which I think is an important rule in life generally. Um, but it's also important, I think, to be able to be malleable and flexible and be able to learn enough about a subject where you can write about it and speak about it. And so I, you know, in any case, I was 15 years old, got paid a hundred bucks. I mean, that was a pretty good day and sat there and took a bunch of photos of, of sharks when, you know, they brought them in, they're all these big boats and they're, you know, fishing. I, I'd never even been fishing. I didn't know what's going on. They, you know, I'm like, these boats all go out. I said, all right, well, like literally anyone I could talk to is not here anymore. They're like out in the ocean somewhere. So I, how am I supposed to do this? And I stood there on a dock for probably three or four hours. And finally, boats start coming in with these like literally 500 pound sharks. And I'm like, all right, cool. Uh, you know, and I, I took some photos and, you know, wrote probably three paragraphs. And uh, in any case, that... That was my first job, I guess, uh, in the business. And, you know, I, I did some other stuff in high school. I was, you know, editor in chief of my high school paper and stuff like that. I worked for a local sports, like, kind of newspaper slash newsletter. And I walked into my college uh, college newspaper office with a, a clip file of articles I'd written and said, hey, if you could review these, I, I would really like to be considered uh, to work for the paper. And, you know, they started looking at me sideways. Like they're like, "No, we usually go after people that try to write for us. Like you guys don't come to us." So, <laughs> um, you know, it's in any case, it's something that I I had always wanted to do. The um, got very lucky out of school. I started at ESPN about three weeks after uh, graduating college and worked in the uh, in the TV production side for seven years. Which uh, I can't tell you how much that has helped me in my current role when I'm working on, you know, whether I've been doing uh, TV with ESPN and Golf Channel, I do a lot of streaming shows with Action Network right now on the PGA Tour. And so uh, just knowing how everything works is so advantageous to me now, uh, having been through all that. And then um, in, in 2004, I'll tell you the very quick story. I'll try it. I'm, you know, I, I just said a minute ago, it's better to listen uh, more than you talk, and I'm I'm talking way too much here, Tom. But, uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I've got you on. That's you, know, okay. you talk better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but uh, in in 2004, um, I became the golf editor. I I don't know why they, you know, I 
I applied for the job and for whatever reason, I had a, a golf background and a writing background and a video background. Somehow somebody decided they would give me a job. So um, moved over from ESPN's TV side to their digital side. And uh, I'll never forget my second day on the job. I went to my boss and I said, look, this is great. You know, I, I've gotten the hang of it. and I, I know how to handle our golf coverage. The only problem is at the time, we didn't have a golf writer. It was the week of the Open Championship. And we didn't have anyone covering it. We didn't have a full-time staff writer. And so I said, look, we really don't have any new content. I'm the editor of a site that doesn't have any content. I said, can I write something? And my, my boss kind of looked at me and said, yeah, I don't care. I'm not going to break the internet. Go, like, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Kid, get out of my way. Just go, yeah, go write something, whatever. I wrote a piece on Colin Montgomery. I'm not sure I'd ever, I know I'd never spoken with Colin Montgomery. I'm not sure I'd ever even seen him in person at that point. I'm sitting in an office in Connecticut writing about, Colin Montgomery getting ready to play the 2004 Open Championship. And uh, the next day, you know, it's, I, he was right. It didn't break the Internet. Uh, you know, it didn't break any writing records either, but didn't break the Internet. So uh, the next day I turned to my boss. I said, uh, you want me to write something else? We still don't have anything today. And he goes, yeah, sure, go ahead. And so <laughs> that's basically how I became a golf writer because I was a golf editor and we didn't have any written content at the time or very little written content. So I just started writing all the time, and uh, within four years, I had sort of taken over just a writing role and given up the editor role, uh, and all kind of snowballed from there. And you know, as soon as you, I guess, in, like I said earlier, in today's age, you can't just be a writer; you have to be a writer and uh, and video personality and podcaster and social media er and all all those other kind of things too with it. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. You know, just stepping out in from college into ESPN, who are you know a leader in sports coverage, was there a case of like one was it an intimidation factor or two was it a case of I've made it straight off the bat? Was there any of that? Because you know that you know you can't get much bigger than ESPN when you first come out from a from a role you're looking for. There wasn't at the time. Yeah, okay, there was some probably intimidation. Sure, I mean, you know, anyone who's 21 years old and starting at a place like ESPN, you're like, oh my good, you know, you know, you're like wide-eyed. But there were so many. I mean, there. Were, I started as production assistant. There were 150 production assistants. We were all sort of in the same boat. I I, I met my wife uh, at that point, and we were both production assistants together. And um, I, I think, you know, I'm looking. I'm looking in the other room. I, I think she's still with me now. So. Uh, <laughs> I have some of my some of my best friends that, that I met at that point. So, yes, it was intimidating, but we were all kind of in the same boat. What's really intimidating is when you become a golf writer, because that's just, hey, there's just one of me. And so now I start going to events. And, you know, definitely, I think um, and I've talked I've spoken with professional golfers about this, the imposter syndrome, where um, you, you don't really feel like you belong. You kind of look around the room and go, man, all these people have done all these great things and. I think professional golfers definitely feel, especially when you first get out on the PGA Tour and you look down the range and Tiger and Phil are over there and Brooks and DJ are over on the other side and you're sitting there like a rookie on the PGA Tour going, what am I doing? Like, do I belong here? Should I be here? And I think it definitely affects some players, uh, you know, and you, as you move on, you get into a WGC type of event and, you know, you're like, well, I'm kind of like the odd man out here, you know, do I really <laughs> belong here? And then you get into a major and, maybe get into contention. And, you know, I, I think there's there's definitely some of that that those guys deal with. I, I think a lot of people in, in really any form of life, any business, uh, tend to deal with it at some point. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, still, uh, I'll still walk into 
a media center and look at some of the people there and go, man, they've accomplished so much in their careers and they're so good. That guy wrote a column yesterday that was so good. That guy, man, he is just so good on TV. I wish I could be as smooth as him. And that guy over there, I mean, he's uh, he's one of the best photojournalists ever, you know. And and then you kind of think about yourself, you're like, man, I'm I'm sitting here right now trying to think of round two head-to-head matchup bets that, <laughs> that I'm going to lose. I mean, it, you know, and you're like, God, what am I doing? You know, and I think dealing with that imposter syndrome is something I guess, you know, we all kind of uh, deal with a little bit at some point in some form. But, you know, it's I, I've spoken with golfers about it, and there's uh, they are definitely very aware of that, uh, I can say. Yeah, I think there's two facets to that. I think when you, when you mentioned on the golfers there, I mean, I had a, a guy from the European Tour, Chris Paisley, and he said that, you know, sure. it took him a while to get his first win. Um, but then, and, and the first time he was in the BMW International Open, he was playing with Henrik Stenson uh, in the final round. And he sort of said that all day he wanted to ask Henrik Stenson what he thought of his swing, what he thought he was <laughs> doing wrong. Uh, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. He didn't feel like he belonged. Uh, then he got his first win, and now he plays at a late owner. He lives in Orlando, and he's playing practice rounds with, with Henrik and, and with Ian Poulter and Benny Ann and people like that, and he just thinks he feels so much more comfortable, and it shows in his results. You know, he's he's you know over 30 years of age, but it's taken him to this point to feel like he's made it, if you like, and he knows he's still got work ahead of him, but... You know, as you say, there, I think there's probably it's probably easier for the younger guys coming out on tour. They probably think, you know, there's probably less of a fear factor on the range. They're probably just giddy with excitement to meet Tiger Woods and things like that. Whereas, you know, a 30 year old PGA Tour rookie that's come from the the Corn Ferry after years of battling maybe really struggles with that first time out. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot to that, I, and I think there's a lot to looking at how and why guys like Colin Morikawa and Victor Hovland and Matthew Wolf have able to be successful so early in their careers more so than uh, a lot of other players i mean we look at i think people look at ricky fowler right now and say god he's he's sort of a disappointment you know he, he's almost kind of a bust you know we thought he was going to be really good and you know, he's what 31 32 years old hasn't won a major oh man you know that's really disappointing what happened and, and i'm sitting there going he like hasn't even reached his prime yet you know we don't <laughs> even know what ricky fowler is going to become phil mickelson at Ricky Fowler's age, had zero major championships, and he now has five. So um, I, I think we tend to, um, you know, put our foot on the gas pedal a little too much instead of pumping the brakes and and trying to understand what we're looking at inside this bubble at this very moment. But I think what has helped these younger players so much is, first of all, I, we tend to forget that you know Tiger grew up. And guys of Tiger's era, I don't mean to make this just a Tiger thing, but, you know, Jim Furyk and Davis Love and, you know, guys who were even a little bit younger, uh, grew up first playing, like, persimmon clubs. And then, okay, well, I, I just got one of these metal drivers, and let's see how this works. And so they've kind of had to change their game, whereas the younger players right now, and, and it's even more so than the Morikawas and the Hovlands and Wolfs, even like the, the Justin Thomases and Jordan Spieths, I think, of that age – basically grew up with very much similar equipment to what they have now. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that Justin Thomas could play the same driver right now that he was playing with when he was nine years old and on all those commercials <laughs> where you see him with his dad, but um, it, it's virtually, you know, pretty similar. Um, you know, he's just, it, he's got more club head speed, more ball speed and, you know, needs different equipment. But, you know, for the most part, it's not such a drastic change. So I think that's, uh, been one thing that helps them. And then the other part is that a lot of these guys have basically been 
professional amateur golfers from a very yeah. young age. You know, they're 10, 12 years old, and let's go fly around the world and play in the World Junior Classic tournament, whatever it might be. And uh, not that they weren't doing that 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I just think it's more prevalent now. Uh, they're becoming so specialized in one given sport, which, you know, we can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, um, you know, they, they are learning how to be professional golfers. They aren't just learning how to play golf. They're learning how to be professional golfers at such a young age right now. And then I think they get onto the PGA Tour and there's no there's no imposter syndrome. There's no uh, feeling of, hey, how do I fit in here? It's just, hey, let's go about business. I mean, Colin Morkow is uh, the absolute most mature 23-year-old I have ever spoken with. I mean, this guy, you would think he's uh, 43 based on just how he speaks, <laughs> his mindset. And, and I think a lot of that goes back. I'm sure he's got a great upbringing and he's just a, a smart kid, but I think a lot of that goes back to how he's been sort of prepared to be a professional golfer for so long. Yeah, and I think, like you said, there's less of a learning curve, not just in, in the equipment, and um, but just, you know, these guys are being covered at Walker Cups, they're being covered at NCAA tournaments, you know, they're used to giving interviews at an early age, aren't they? You know, the match play tournaments are, you know, televised. Um, you know, I spoke to, to Will Zalatoris recently, and he was saying, you know, he was on that Walker Cup team, and, and they all kind of knew they were ready for the professional game, you know, before their senior year of college, you know, they're they're ready to go out there and and i think there is a lot of technology about it i think that you know when you've got track man and you can keep your numbers i think that helps you out i think what's available yep. to golf coaches helps uh, yep. i just spoke to carl thompson before we came on and he was i was saying to him i put a question to him i said that if you think you came out now in the same age do you think you'd have adapted to the pga tour uh quickly and, and maybe got a win on the pga tour and he said yeah absolutely he said it's not an arrogant thing it's just a case of um, you know, there's so much more resources available to you. And when your your body's failing towards the end of your career, when, when the technology is available to you as opposed to a spry 21-year-old, um, you know, it's a certainly different game. So I think that is a lot of it. Like you say, they're, they're used to being interviewed. They're used to uh, being covered. Uh, they know they're good. Uh, the stats back it up. They don't need to be told or, or convinced of anything. Um, so what have they got to fear? Just go out there and play your best golf and, and eventually you'll keep up with these uh, these experienced pros. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a kid at my club whose older brother is a very accomplished player. He's playing PGA Tour Latino America right now. And uh, this kid's 16 years old. We, he's been playing in our game since he was probably 11 or so, uh, where we'd let him play from the red tees and we'd give him six shots. And he'd walk away with a big stack of cash afterwards. <laughs> and we all knew he was going to be pretty good. I mean, he knew, okay, well, he's got a good swing. And maybe if he grew up well, he's probably grown. Uh, grown a foot since then, if not more, and filled out his frame. And, you know, he works out and he works so hard in his game. And you can see him developing. He's 16 years old now. He's, uh, he's signed already for a major Division One college scholarship. And he's going to, he knows he's going to be a professional golfer. I mean, I, I'm not sure that there's even a backup plan right now. But uh, he knows that in some form, he's going to be a professional golfer. We're playing for money. Um, couple weeks ago and he and he loves playing for money which i think is a great thing for a young kid i mean i you know that as an aside if you're a i will take the 16 year old kid playing adults for uh 20 30 a match or whatever you want to do uh as opposed to the 16 year old kid who's in the at the back of the range by himself grinding on his game and working on his swing like give, give me the kid that wants to uh play for something on the line because i think he's going to be able to withstand the pressure better when they get into those 
situation. So we were, we were playing. I was joking around with them. I go, why don't you, uh, you know, you want 20, you want to give me 20 bucks or uh, you want to give me 0.1% of your future career earnings? And he kind of goes, well, I'm going to make like 30 million on tour. So what's 0.1%? <laughs> I go, you better start figuring out those decimal points pretty soon or else you're, you're going to lose a lot of that 30 million. So uh, no, just the, the fact that kids at such a young age now, um, and maybe you can call it cockiness, but they have the confidence that, hey, I'm going to go out there on tour. I'm going to go play. And yes, I'm going to be a really good professional golfer. I, I don't think it's uh, something that was as visible and apparent 25, 30, 40 years ago. No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, one story I want to get onto is uh, is Phil Mickelson at the 2013 Wells Fargo. I know it's a story you'll like to tell. But <laughs> um, now he is one of these players that they sort of spoke about it a few years ago. And again, they kind of kept it hush-hush because I don't like talking about his gambling stories until recently. But he's always tried to play the youngsters for money, hasn't he? When they come out and play practice rounds with him, he's always tried to try to encourage that. He wants something to get him going during the week. And a lot of the guys I'm interviewing now, um, I spoke to Will Zalatoris a couple of episodes ago, and he said that, um, I said, what you know, what happened during lockdown for you to come out on this heater on the Corn Ferry Tour where you're top six every week and winning? He said, me and Davis Riley and, and Tony Romo and Jordan Spieth were just playing for cash every week. And he said it felt so much more important to to beat the life out of the out of your your housemate and and Tony Romo for cash than it was to to make a putt on the on the Corn Ferry, you know. And and because it's not the money, it's the it's the pride of having to hand that money over 20 bucks. And I saw Charlie Hoffman joked about it. He doesn't like using Venmo when he's taking money off people. He wants them to give it to them in cash. It's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's funny, isn't it? And, and I think it is. I think that it is important to have those, uh, have those moments where you go, okay, well, this is going to, this is going to make me grind and, and play so seriously in the practice rounds as opposed to just taking it easy. I, I think you said that very well right there. I, I have spoken with a lot of PGA Tour players over the last couple of years for different gambling-related pieces. You know, I, I've done two different series now. Actually, I've done, uh, done two different series with PGA Tour players. I've done one with Champions Tour players, sort of legends of the game. Uh, I did one with LPGA players, just sort of like your favorite gambling story. And it always it always strikes me as weird. Either, either one of two things, um, when I hear from a player, says, yeah, I don't really play for money very much. Either they're lying or... It's just it's just a little strange. Who doesn't play golf for money? I, I don't play golf if I, I'm not playing for money. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I went out with uh, with three really good friends yesterday, and it was a very friendly match. I mean, it's not, you know, we don't want to take each other's money. It's not that cutthroat. One of them's a professional, so, you know, we got to figure out all the shots and all that kind of stuff. But let's just play for something, you know, just, just so we have something on the line. If I'm going out there by myself and, you know, just hitting golf balls, I, I – I couldn't care less. I, I play enough golf that, um, you know, I don't need to play for nothing. So, you know, just to have a little bit of something on the line it is so very important. Getting to Phil, uh, Phil's famous line that he would always use is enough to keep you interested, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. And what that means, of course, is, you know, hey, look, we're not going to play for five bucks. We're PGA Tour players. Like, let, let's, you know, if it's five bucks, you just hand me five bucks right now, not care about the next three and a half hours, and you know we can get on with our day. So it's a, it's enough to kind of keep you interested in what's going on, but it's not so much that, you know, we're you know we're going to be so cutthroat that we're not even going to talk to each other for a few weeks afterwards. So uh, there's some really good stories. I think they've kind of curtailed that Tuesday money game just a little bit, but it was going on for a long time. I've got some great stories. I you know followed a lot of those, walked around uh, with them for a lot of them. There's 
one story, you know, kind of getting to what we're talking about here is uh, at the Open Championship, probably, boy, it might have been the year that Phil won, maybe the year before. And uh, it, it was Phil and Dustin Johnson and one other player playing practice round. And Phil, you know, on the first tee said, hey, you know, let's just do like, you know, we'll kind of do like a stroke play type of thing. And uh, how about the third place guy pays the first place guy and just the second guy breaks even. And the third player in this group said, okay, what are we playing for? Phil said, oh, you know, the usual, which is, you know, again, enough to keep you interested, not enough to make you uncomfortable. And the third player apparently became uncomfortable. And he said, eh, Phil, can we play for less? Can you imagine Can you imagine standing on the first tee <laughs> and looking at Phil Mickelson, who suggests a bet, and saying, ah, can we do it for less? And you're a professional golfer. Phil has told me this story. And I won't give the guy's name, but Phil said at that very moment, I knew that this guy didn't have what it takes to win big tournaments. And it, this guy, this guy who's he's one on tour, he's one on tour a handful of times, but uh, never sniffed a major, never really come close. And you know, Phil said, "Really? Look, we're we're playing for millions of dollars this week. You're not going to play for X." And the guy said, "Well, you know, I, you know, I'm staying." Stay in a house this week, and that's cost me a lot. And I brought the family over, and so you know, I spent a lot of money. I just didn't want to. It felt fine, whatever. But that just, it, Phil said, that told me a lot about that player when he didn't want to play for you know one one thousandth or one ten thousandth of what the first place check was that week. Maybe maybe even more one one hundred thousand. Well, that something, something really. Like that. He can't even be backing himself to make the cut, really, can he? If he's not willing to pay for the, the amount of money to play a practice round, he's not even he's not even thinking about the money he could earn for past the weekend. That it, it would be a drop in the ocean in the end. What that tells me, Tom, is that the guy's thinking so much about the money. It, yeah. If the guy's thinking about the money in a Tuesday or Wednesday practice round, where it's like, hey, I don't want to play that much, the guy's probably also thinking on Friday afternoon, Hey, I better make this putt so I can make the cut. I can make thirty grand this week. And on Sunday afternoon, he's thinking, "Oh man, I need to. If I birdie the last three, I can make X amount. But if I bogey the last three, I'm going to make that." You cannot play professional golf if you're thinking about the money like that. You can think about your score, think about your place on the leaderboard, but if you're thinking about the actual dollars uh, that you're going to make that week, I just, I just don't think you can do it that way. And so, you know, Phil kind of sniffed this guy out and understood sort of um you know the the fact that you know this this is not a guy that can handle the pressure based on the fact that you know he doesn't want to play for any money especially at a major championship right so you know regular tournament okay you know maybe you want to think about rider cup points you want to think about world rankings and things like that but at a major championship you are there to win you're not there to make a cut you know you've got yourself into the field for a reason uh back yourself you know, take the lesson that you're going to get from Phil Mickelson in a practice round um, and want to beat him. That's why not only does he want to, you know, pick up a check at the at the end of the week, he wants to take some cash home, but he, he wants you to, to grind as well to beat him. And, you know, it, you know, Phil never likes losing, but, and he probably doesn't lose very often. But if he could see a, a Ricky Fowler when he was younger or Keegan Bradley or someone like that come to him and say, right, well, I'm going to get this up and down because I'm going to take your money, he's going to be just as proud of that person. That person's going to take that into the week knowing that, okay, well, I've got the better of Phil Mickelson in the practice round. Why can't I do it for four days at the Open Championship? Tom, you have no idea how right you are about Phil <laughs> taking these younger players under his wing. I was at the Players' Championship. This is probably three or four years ago. And uh, I had heard about the story of Phil's match and how it went that day, first of all. Um, 
he and one of his usual partners, a, a younger player, um, had gotten an offer from two other players that are not part of the usual Tuesday money game. And they said, hey, we want to play. And, you know, Phil turns to his guy and said, hey, we got a couple of pigeons. Let's, uh, you know, let's tell, tell them the game's about twice as much as it usually is just because I think we're going to take their money. So uh, they're, they're going to the 17th hole. Phil's one down. Phil and this player are one down, and they have pressed. And Phil turns to one of his opponent's caddies and says, hey, I'm really sorry. And the caddy goes, sorry for what? He goes, oh, we're going to win this hole, and then we're going to win the next hole, we're going to win the whole <laughs> match and the press, and your guy's going to be moping around this place for the next five days. And the caddy's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And so Phil's partner, a younger player, sticks it on 17, makes the putt. They go to 18, and Phil tells this story. Phil said, well, of course I was right in the middle of the fairway because, you know, I don't miss very many fairways. And my partner, he's off in the trees <laughs> on the right, you know, he didn't hit a very good tee shot. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of sizing mine up and I'm about to hit. I, I figure, like, I'm going to hit a good shot in there. I've got I've to rescue us because, you know, he made a birdie on the last hole. It's my turn anyway. And all of a sudden, my partner hits this amazing shot. It goes over the water. It cuts into the hole. It lands like a butterfly with soft feet two feet from the hole. My partner, he walked across the water to get to the green. <laughs> and, and Phil, the pride in Phil's voice. I mean, Phil was so much happier that his partner had hit that shot to win than if he had hit it himself. He loved the fact that his guy basically carried him to that victory. And yes, it's a guy that he's taken under his wing and, and mentored a little bit. And by the way, the end of that story is that Phil, after his partner tapped in for birdie to indeed win the match and win the press, Walked up to that cat. He looked at him and said, told you. And just walked away. <laughs> and, and he was absolutely right because that guy moped around for the next five days at TBC Sawgrass uh, uh, feeling bad about losing to Phil and the other guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, but we, we, not only in the practice rounds, but with Phil as well, we saw that at uh, Medina, right? So we saw him take Keegan Bradley under his wing. Uh, and, and Keegan was electric that week. You know, they won four and three on, in the morning. Uh, they won two and one again in the afternoon, taking down uh, McElroy and McDowell. Uh, and then they go and win seven and six on Saturday. And you think, okay, well, Keegan Bradley is a very good player in his own right. Phil Mickelson's obviously a legend of the game. But he has elevated that guy's confidence to another level to play probably the best golf he's ever played in his career. Um, and that's not just from, obviously, money gains, but that's obviously going to have helped him. And that's how he's breeded that confidence. And, and you do see it more and more, and it comes up more and more in conversation now. Yeah, I've spoken with Keegan about it on various occasions, and he said Phil was just unbelievable that week. He's like he would he would whisper the very perfect thing to me at the perfect time. He and this comes from those Tuesday games. I mean, this is you know you can say what you will and whatever, but if they don't play those Tuesday games together for a few years leading up to that Ryder Cup, Phil doesn't know how Keegan reacts to certain situations. He doesn't know, you know, does he like to be challenged? Does he like to be coddled? Does he like uh, to, to be the alpha? Does he like to be the beta? You know, like, Phil doesn't know how he reacts to certain situations. But playing in those Tuesday games not only helped Keegan because he knows now, you know, hey, I can, I can hang with these guys. I can play with Phil. Uh, I know how to be his partner. But it helps Phil to motivate Keegan and to get him to sort of feel kind of what he was feeling at that point. And so, you know, Keegan, I've talked about it, and he, he said, you know, Phil, whether it was in the locker room beforehand, on the practice green, on the first tee, uh, on the, you know, the sixth green, whatever it might have been, 
He's like, every single time, Phil just told me the exact perfect thing that I needed to hear at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And this takes me on to my, to my question I had back earlier in the, in the podcast we didn't get to, is that who was your favorite player to cover during the your ESPN and Golf Channel days? And I know Tiger obviously moves the needles for everybody, but was there a singular player? I think, you know, it sounds like Mickelson's been a lot of fun to talk to. Was there someone like that? Phil might be my favorite player to talk to sort of in an off-the-record, just casual setting. And I don't mean that there's, like, salacious stuff that we're talking about. I just mean, no. like, once or twice a year, we might be, you know, I catch him in a parking lot, and he's not in a hurry, and I'm not in a hurry, and we sit there for 40 minutes, maybe me, him, and, you know, one or two other writers, and just kind of shoot the breeze for a while and tell some stories. And uh, there's nobody I like just kind of spending that time with, and I haven't done it, obviously, in a long time um, because of everything that's going on. But I, I really enjoy just just listening to Phil and, and talking with Phil. I, I just think he's he's so much fun to be around. Um, I, I will tell you, and I – you know, for years, I would get the question, basically, what you just asked, you know, who, who, who are the best interviews? Who are, like, the really nice guys on the PGA Tour? Who do you like talking to? And I would name some names, and people would always go, oh. You know, because I'd say, well, Robert Streb and Brendan <laughs> Steele. And, you know, I'd go through Bobby Gates. And, you know, I'd, I'd name some of these names, and people would go, oh. Like, you know, they wanted to hear the big name. You know, if it's yeah. not someone in the top five or ten in the world, like, don't give me these arms. Don't ask the question, who are the nice guys and who are the guys you really like if you don't want to hear the answer. I'm giving you a legit answer based on who I know. I But I have said recently over the last probably couple of years that I'm not sure there's ever been a point, maybe going back to Arnold Palmer, you know, and obviously this is before my time. And I did spend some time around Palmer, but, you know, later in his life and, you know, me, maybe Seve, maybe Greg Norman, but I, I'm not sure... Um, and certainly not in the last 25 years, which has been the Tiger era. There's never been a point when the best player in the world has also been the best interview in the world. And we have gotten to that point with Rory McIlroy, where I, I just think that Rory is as thoughtful as um, what's the word I want to use? Say, so, you know, he's he, he's way better at this than I am. Um, well, I think uh, he's just put the tour on his shoulders, right? Like he's he's taken the responsibility that people thrust upon him as the next Tiger Woods in terms of on the course. I feel like he's now the poster boy, and he's taken that expectation and gives all his open thoughts as much as he can, and really gives the answers that you need, as opposed to just giving you the snapshot answers that others might do. Before Rory started speaking out on different issues a few years ago, I'm not sure that I ever had considered the idea of leadership in the world of professional golf. I, you know, it's, hey, it's an individual sport. We don't need leaders. This isn't a football club where it's like, hey, he's the captain and he speaks for us and he's going to lead the team and, you know, he's going to he's gonna do the, the, whole, the whole chant and the cheering thing before we get on the field and he's going to be the one that yells at the ref and all that kind of stuff. It, it's an individual sport, so we don't get that. And yet, Rory has emerged as a leader. Uh, yeah. he's, a, he's a leader in the world of golf. He's a leader for the other players. Um, he's as smart as they come. He's as uh, thoughtful as they come. He, he has opinions. He's not afraid to voice those opinions, even if they're uh, counterintuitive to what the uh, general public might think. So I, I just think that um, that he's fantastic. And so, you know, anytime I get a chance to uh, ask Rory a question about something that, um, you know, whether it's golf related or not golf related, but just something interesting where I want to get an opinion from somebody talking to Rory is great. And, uh, and he is, he is 
uh, one of the nicest guys out there. I mean, I you know again get asked the sort of the nice the nice guy and the best interview question are not the same question whatsoever. No. But he's he tends to to check every box there and and that you know he's just a good guy and you know a couple of years ago I, this is actually a very funny story that um, Rory and I had like what could have been construed as like this social media clash except like we were both on the same side like he was agreeing with me and i think people took it as like him yelling at me on twitter and so <laughs> it, yeah i think he and i both knew what was going on but everyone else was like yeah you tell him rory so the next week uh, we have to be at the arnold palmer invitational and um i i walked up to where i was like the sixth hole or something during the pro-am and i had a buddy with me a buddy who said you know a lot of people always ask me like hey can i get tickets to whatever event i said i don't have tickets you know if i had tickets i'd give you tickets but i don't I have a media credential, and so I walk in. So a buddy of mine said, hey, I don't want tickets. I want to follow you around for a day and see what happens. I said, okay. I said, I don't have a credential or anything, but I guess if you kind of look like you belong and walk with me, then just see what happens. <laughs> I said, you might get thrown out in 10 minutes. I, I, I don't know. And he said, okay. So my buddy's kind of just tagging along with me, and you know, I walk up to Rory, and we're talking about this whole social media thing. And he's He's laughing about it. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, I knew, I knew what you were saying. I was agreeing with you. I know some people thought I wasn't, whatever. So Rory and I are having a good conversation. We're walking up the hall. After about five minutes, we're walking down the fairway. I turn around. My buddy is two feet behind me, just like, you know, big smile on his face. He's walking down the fairway with Rory McIlroy. And I, I turn and I just start laughing. I go, hey, Rory, this is my, my buddy, Andrew. He's I, walking down the fairway with us for some reason. He doesn't belong here, but whatever. Rory could have been kind of put off and well, you know, why is he here? What's going on? You know, not that he's going to call security, but just sort of a little standoffish. I think some players would be like, what? Who is he? Or he sticks out his hand, shakes his hand, say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How are you? He's just a a nice guy, you know? You know, he doesn't really put up his guard. um, And he's not afraid of speaking his opinion. So I I think he's fantastic. Yeah, I think that says everything about him that, you, you know, we need to know really is that he is so welcoming. I think he is very good. I, you know, I thought at times that you know he he let the the pressure get to him and he buckled under it in big moments in terms of uh, majors sometimes, especially as there's been a bit of a drought. Um, and then just over the last couple of years, like you say, he just seems to have taken everything on. He's he is a real leader, especially the 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 PGL right. That's been a big big talk to him. And until um, he came out and said, "I'm not going to do it," everyone was kind of they were probably going to say that, but he didn't. They didn't want to be the first one. Uh, and Brooks Kepka was very open. He said, look, I called Rory McIlroy and asked him his opinion before speaking out. And as soon as Rory came out and said he wasn't doing it, Brooks followed. And I think that shows everything you need to know, doesn't it? That, you know, if if people are waiting to see what he wants to do uh, before doing it themselves, and that, that is clear indicator of what he is as, as a leader. Yeah, that's that's really well said, Tom. I, I completely agree. He was very good on all the PGL stuff. I, I think that... A lot of other players, you know, a lot of other players take a cue from their agents, their managers, their sponsors, and, um, you know, they try to play a little game. And I think the the game behind all the PGL stuff was, hey, let's get some leverage. Let's, you know, at least act interested in the PGL, and then if we need something from the PGA Tour, well, we kind of have the upper hand now, and the PGA Tour might, you know, might kind of owe us something and might try to, you know, win us back and, and you know, swoon over us just a little bit, whereas... Rory said, look, I'm, I'm not playing the game. Uh, you know, I'm not interested. I'm not going anywhere. I love what I do. I'm staying here, and that's it. And I, I think after he did that, a lot of the other players were like, yeah, you know what? The game's kind of silly. Yeah. Let's, let's not play that game. Let's just, you know, 
let's just kind of follow Rory's lead. And so he's been like that on so many other topics where he's just been really good, really smart. I mean, just talking about COVID-19 and, you know, whether they should come back and what they should do. He's just, he's very, very thoughtful on everything. Um, You know, which uh, as a journalist, I appreciate, you know, as a guy that has to ask the questions, all I want, I I don't necessarily want a, an established answer. I, I don't want, um, I'm not looking for an answer that fits, you know, whatever I'm writing that day. I, I just want an unvarnished opinion. I, I just want, I want to get inside that player's head and, and, and get a sense of what they're thinking. There are a lot of players that you ask a question of them, they give you an answer. And as they're answering, you're sitting there nodding your head. And as you're nodding your head, you're going, they're, they're not telling me the truth. You know, I, I know they're not telling me the truth. They know they're not telling me the truth. And yet we're going to play it off as if they are, you know, this is their unvarnished opinion. And whereas Rory, uh, he is just, I don't think he has it in him. He, he doesn't have sort of the dishonesty bone where he can just, you know, sort of tell lies in the press. And, you know, he, even if it'll make him look better, you know, remember the, um, what was it, the role model thing a few years ago at the Open where he was asked about being a role model. Like, I'm not a role model, you know, and <laughs> it, it probably didn't look good for him. But, hey, look, that was his opinion. And that's, that's what, what he wanted to tell us. Yeah, and I think now, like you say, but before you said the uh, players were sort of uh, cues from agents and sponsors and things like that, and now um, I think sometimes even the players that are so outspoken now are, are so much more popular with uh, the golf fans and, and the community, especially on social media, that actually it works in their favour to be outspoken. And and one of the things that Rory spoke about recently was, um, you know, he was asked about the likes of Tommy Fleetwood and, and Francesco Molinari not coming over to play, and he said, you know, like... Um, if you really care about your career and care about moving forward, you should be here. And I think that, you know, there was all these well-ranking points available. Um, and, if, you know, if it takes two weeks to quarantine, why are you not doing it? Um, now, this is a, a Ryder Cup partner or two Ryder Cup partners he's going to have for years to come. Um, you know, they're good friends of his, as far as I can tell. Um, and the headline was always going to go out that, you know, he um, didn't, didn't you know, respect their decision and, he th- and thinks they should care more. But... He was careful with his answer, and I'm sure that Tommy Fleetwood and Francesco Molinari respect what he has to say, and I don't think there's any animosity there. I think he was careful enough to say it. I think what we need to understand as golf fans, as golf journalists, is that we see 1%, maybe less than 1% of what's actually going on. I tell people this all the time. I tell, I tell fans this. You know, I, I'll have fans who argue, about me, argue with me about stuff on social media, and I'll say, do you think you know the PGA Tour pretty well? Yeah, of course I do. I'm a big fan. I said... I've been covering it full-time for 16 years. I'm entrenched in it. I live it every day. I don't know most of what's going on on the PGA Tour. It's just, it's impossible. And, you know, I, I think that we miss a lot. We see, you know, we catch the headlines. But the headlines are not a major part of it. And so I, I think you have to dig beneath the surface a little bit. And So you think about it, you say, okay, well, Rory made headlines by kind of calling out Tommy Fleetwood. If you think about it, if a buddy of yours, one of your mates said, Hey, I, you know, I don't think Tom, uh, you know, if Tom really cares about his podcast, he will go go overseas and move up the world ranking of podcasts. And <laughs> uh, you know, are are you going to look at your buddy and go, man, that's it. That's a we now have a fractured relationship, yeah, and I, I don't think yeah. we can we can be friends. That's his opinion. Yeah, maybe I agree, maybe I don't. I kind of see what he's saying, but yeah, eh, whatever. Yeah, I'll grab a beer with him next time I see him. It's just. It, that's not going to kill a friendship. And I think that because we only see that 
of, you know, okay, well, that's what he said publicly and that's what happened. That, you know, I think we have to look at it from their perspectives and go, you know, if they get paired together in the Ryder Cup next year and it's Rory and Fleetwood, you think Tommy's going to be mad at him on the first tee because he made some (laughs) comment comment about traveling the world during a pandemic? Give me a break. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? And and I just wanted to go back now about a story we, we alluded to uh, with Phil Mickelson at, at the Wells Fargo, um, because I don't, I don't want to miss this one. It was an article <laughs> you wrote, and, it, and I was, when I was reading about it last night, it just made me chuckle. And I can't believe it, I'd missed it, really. And it was the famous tournament where Derek Ernst uh, beat David Lynn in the playoff. Uh, but there were two guys there that really should have been in the hunt, and that was Phil Mickelson and Nick Watney. Um, talk us about what happened on Saturday evening that night before the final round. Yeah, Phil was actually uh, tied for the lead at that point, and um, he had invited uh, a handful of players, caddies, reporters to a little uh, restaurant slash bar down the street from Quail Hollow. Um, told us early in the week, he said, "Yeah, come on down." It was probably about sixty people. It was a very, very nice get together. I mean, it was you know just sort of like yeah, it wasn't wild, it wasn't crazy, but it was just sort of everyone kind of sitting around having some drinks, having some food, you know, just having some good conversation. It was. It was just like a nice little, nice little Saturday night. And so Phil had set this up and, you know, told us, hey, there's going to be NBA and NHL playoff games on. There's a Mayweather fight. We'll have the fight on TV. And, you know, it's on me. Just come and hang out, relax, and have a good time. And, you know, so Phil Mickelson invites you. You go. So I I went, hung out with a couple other writers, talked to some of the other players and caddies there, talked to Phil a lot that night. And, um, and before the undercard of the – uh, Mayweather fight started. Phil stood up in front of the room and said, look, I'm not going to make any big speeches or anything, but I just wanted to say to everyone, thanks for coming. It's all on me tonight. If you need anything, the staff here is great. So, you know, just um, just tell them what you want and, you know, have a good time, relax, and hope everyone enjoys it. No, by the way, uh, wagering is encouraged. Everyone kind of <laughs> gives him a little, a little Bronx cheer and, yeah, okay, Phil, and, you know, he kind of Walks away, you know, okay, so the first fight of the undercard is, you know, two light flyweights or whatever it is, and no one knows who they are, and any, no one's barely paying attention, we're waiting for the, the big fight, and um, so before the second fight of the undercard comes up, Phil stands up against it, sorry, I, said I wouldn't give any more big speeches, but uh, in this fight, it's the welterweight title fight, or whatever it was, uh, so in this one, we've got the title holder, who's 37-0 and 0 with 30 career knockouts, and you know, he's been very good for a very long time. And uh, he's facing some young kid who's 19 years old, who's 17 and 10 right now. And, uh, you know, he's a major underdog. But you know what? I don't know. I'm just feeling it tonight. So I, I'll take even money. If anyone wants to uh, bet even money, you, I'll give you the title holder, who's the favorite, and I'll take the, uh, I'll take the challenger. <laughs> and so at this point in the room is the point where you should take out your phone and Google these two boxers because um, the, there was some some very relevant information that was missing from Phil's speech. Instead, what probably 80% of the room did was raise their hand and basically make bets with Phil. And so I was in for 100 bucks myself, and uh, there were some players that were in for, let's just say, more than that. And so um, the fight starts, and Phil's guy just starts pummeling the title holder. And as it turns out, <laughs> Phil's, Phil's guy was like the the number one ranked phenom in the world of boxing who, yes, he had lost a few times when he was very early in his pro career, but he was on the up and up and was about to become one of the 
better fighters in the game. And the title holder was, yes, he was a title holder and hadn't lost, but hadn't really fought anybody and he was getting older. And so this one was like all set up for Phil. Phil knew that and none of us did our research. And it was a second round TKO for Phil's guy. And Phil walked around the room and in very typical Phil fashion, you know, he's kind of taking everyone's money. Oh, I'm so sorry. I just got lucky. Uh, yeah. Wow. I didn't think it would be over like that. Boy, sorry about that. You know, I'm just kind of taking everybody's money. My guess is at the end of the night, he basically paid for the entire night with our money and tipped out the staff with our money. And we walked out the door and had to shake Phil's hand and say, thanks so, so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? And and I just think that's so typical of Phil. And I think as we learn more about him further down his career, it's something he's done throughout his life. And do, do you think that the evenings like that, I mean, I don't know how long you've been into betting and things. I'm going to go on to the Action Network now. Do you think evenings like that sort of piqued your interest into, into betting and wanting to be able to write about it? Because as you said, ESPN, the Golf Channel, basically told you, no, we don't talk about this. PJ Tour cut it off if ever it was talked about. You know, gambling wasn't legal in, in anywhere outside of Vegas for a long time. You know, it was cut off. And then now there's this massive push. And Action Network have just done a massive partnership with the PJ Tour. Yeah, so Tom, I had always thought for a long time, because, you know, I, I I would bet, you know, not, not big and not a lot, more, you know, more like pools and, you know, fantasy type stuff than like straight, you know, okay, I'm, I'm betting on this team or betting on this golfer. And certainly I, I wasn't betting on golf whatsoever just because, I didn't want to get in trouble. I, you know, both ESPN and Golf Channel, where I'd worked before, um, basically told us you, you can't bet on golf. And, you know, you can you can make predictions within your uh, your content, but, you know, the predictions aren't to include, well, this guy's 28 to 1. He's a much better price, and you should play him as opposed to this guy at 10 to 1. So it was just, you know, hey, just pick a player. It doesn't matter kind of what his price is and, and what his odds are. So, um, But I'd always thought, that the two industries sort of needed to mesh better. So we have beat writers, not only in golf, but in every sport who cover the game from a very organic standpoint. You know, they're, they're out there and they're writing about, well, this player is playing very well and this player had this to say. And, uh, you know, it's, it's basically, okay, if, if you want the information for gambling purposes, then you can use it that way. But it wasn't specifically for gambling. And then all the gambling content out there was basically not beat writers. It was guys who were kind of sitting at home who were doing that content on their own, whether they're um, they're grinding over analytics or whether they're just kind of giving their own opinion. They're, they're working from a standpoint of, you know, I've, I've never actually seen these players in person, but here's what I think. And so yeah. um, I, I think there's... I always thought there was something to having beat writers who cover that sport on a regular basis, but cover it from a gambling standpoint. I mean, who knows better what's going on in the inner workings of whether it's the PGA Tour or the NFL or the Premier League or, or whatever it might be than those who are, are covering it on a daily and weekly basis than, uh, than those writers. And so I, I just thought, you know, I had this opportunity to come to the Action Network and, and basically combine – those two things, being a beat writer and and covering it on a full time basis with covering it from a, a gambling and fantasy type of standpoint. And, you know, I, I think this is I thought at the time this was the future of 
the sports journalism industry. I think at the time it is the present and, and still future of the sports journalism industry. I, I just think that the way I put it to people right now, I said, first of all, if you read my content, even if you're not betting, even if you're not playing fantasy, if you just want to become smarter about what you're watching on any given week, hopefully we're doing that for you. And hopefully it's not just, you know, hey, it's just gambling. It's just, it's analysis. And so I, I would think that if, if you're a golf fan, even if you're not putting down a dollar to bet on whatever, and you just want to become interested and more informed, then that's what we're doing. And, you know, the other part of that is um, it does make it more interesting. This is why the PGA Tours got involved, because they see a need to get their fans, first of all, get more fans, um, and, and get the current fans more interested, because for so long, you can go to a PGA Tour event, and if Tiger is playing and Phil is playing and Rory is playing, well, guess what? 95% of the spectators on site are immediately going towards those guys. And so the PGA Tour needed to find a way to get people more invested and engaged in what is going on there without just being invested and engaged in their top three or four favorite players. And how do you do that? Well, gambling gets you pretty invested. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's basically the very definition of it right there is, you know, you, you can love Tiger Woods, but if you show up at a tournament or you turn on the TV and you bet on uh, oh, Shane Lowry that week, and all of a sudden Shane Lowry's on the leaderboard, guess what? Your attention is going to go to Shane Lowry very, very quickly. And so um, I, I think the tour understands that. The tour understands how uh, they're going to profit both directly and indirectly off of an increased interest in gambling. And as far as me personally, um, I, I love it. I, I tell people all the time, and this is, you know, I would tell you this on the record, off the record, uh, I tell friends this, that I, I loved my time at ESPN. I did two stints there. I, you know, um, some of my, my, be my best friends, some of my greatest memories came at ESPN. Uh, I was at Golf Channel for four years. I, you know, moved my entire family down to Orlando just to work at Golf Channel, have some great friends and great memories of working there. Being at the Action Network right now is the most fun job that I've ever had. Um, I, I have great freedom and independence. It, uh, the story I alluded to is, is very only uh, that I, I, I spoke about earlier, a very silly, sort of funny, hopefully funny, you know, kind of stupid story that uh, I wrote for uh, my PGA Championship preview content for next week. But it's like tangentially about gambling, but really it's just kind of a fun column. And so I have the freedom and independence to write. If, if I don't want to write about necessarily something in golf that, that involves gambling, I can do it. I, I can basically do whatever I want um, while covering it from a gambling standpoint, which quite honestly uh, interests me a whole lot more than writing about the guy who shot 67 in the opening round and whether he can go on and win that. We, it's just, you know, that I love the human interest stories, but those were, were so few and far between. And, you know, just the, the daily minutia of little things that I covered for so long, just I, I'd sit there and write them and say, man, I'm not interested in writing this. Nobody's going to be interested <laughs> in reading this. And so, um, you know, I always think now that if I'm a fan and I have five minutes, you know, in between, okay, you know, the world is inundated with content and we're all so busy right now, you know, come home from work and I've got five minutes to sit down before I have dinner with the wife and kids and, you know, okay, I, I like golf and I haven't been able to see something. Do I want to read just, hey, here's kind of what happened and here's what might happen later. 
or do I want to read, here's how you can make money by betting on this golf tournament right now? Well, I want that personal investment. I want personal engagement. And so um, I, I feel like that's the direction that everything is heading. And I, I feel like it's um, you guys probably in the UK have been there for a long time already. We're playing catch up here in the US and we're still at a very nominal amount of states that um, have legalized sports gambling. I, I've got to imagine, I, I have no inside knowledge on this, but uh, with states lo losing so much money in the economy based on COVID-19 over the past handful of months that one very easy way to stir up the economy <laughs> over the next year would be to legalize sports gaming. And so um, I, I just, I can't imagine that it won't be more prevalent in the U.S. over the next six months to a year to two years and certainly uh, beyond that. So I, I think it's only going to get much, much bigger over here. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've had golf been over here for years and, it, and it's certainly been something that definitely piques my interest. If I go to an event over here, I'm I'm certainly following the guy that I don't recognize on the street, but the guy that I've bet on at 80 to 1. Um, but, you know, I think you guys did it better in terms of fantasy sports. So when DraftKings came along and FanDuel and things like that, that really took off for you guys. And people were crossing state lines just to be able to put a line up in and then come back. Um, you know, that that kind of showed it. And then they kind of embraced DraftKings, didn't they, as a, as a partner um, and allowed the, the fantasy aspect. And now you're getting like the head-to-head -head matchups on the Action Network. You know, you can gamble at the outrights. Um, you know, it's, it's a, certainly a massive conversational point you know next week i will release two or three uh episodes about the, the basically the betting preview of of the tournament i've spoken to you know my main body of workers was originally uh, player interviews and they're, and they're great i love the human side of it um but every week there's more people listening to who we're going to bet on at the the hero open over here in england than there is listening to the, the PJ Tour stud that's just one each week. So it certainly is easier to get invested in it. You can do it in short form. Um, and like you say, I just think that there's been such a taboo around it for so long that it's, that it's almost a bad thing. And I think they, I think for me, I don't know if it changed anything at all, but did the match between, the first match between Tiger and Phil when they were putting up odds on the screen and they were wagering between themselves, was that kind of a, a soft way to them to get into it and see what the reaction was? For the PJ Tour, probably. I don't know about the general public. I think that, you know, we've sort of, through other sports, I, I think we understand what gambling is. And I, I, you're right, it was always taboo, but it was something that everyone always did. I, when I took this job, it's been almost two and a half years now, and talked with a, a fellow sports writer who, um, you know, works mostly on sort of more human interest stories and columns. And I said, you know, what do you think about, you know, me just writing, you know, writing mostly about betting content? And he said, guess what? We're all writing betting content, whether we have odds listed next to the players' names or not. That's, <laughs> that's what people are using it for. Um, whether, whether you think you're writing about gambling or not writing about gambling, you're writing about gambling. And so I, that's always stuck with me. I said, you know, that, it, it is taboo, or at least has been taboo. Those walls are coming down. I think DraftKings was a, a nice way for the PGA Tour to initially get involved because DFS, and I'm, I'm a DFS addict. I, I love it. I just think it's... It's more fun for me to pick players. And, you know, to me, some people sit around and do like word searches or crossword puzzles. I sit around early in the week and make golf lineups because I'm like, it's just, it's just fun to do. It's like, you know, it's like taking little pieces and trying to put little pieces together of, of that puzzle. And so, you know, that that to me is more enjoyable than 
just say, okay, well, I just threw X amount on somebody who's 20 to one and hopefully in four days it'll cash. I mean, I, obviously we're all doing that as well. It's just, that's, that's more of a, a you know, kind of a, a sweat. That's more of a, okay, well, we'll see what, what happens. But the DFS part of it, I, I just think it's fun. I just, I, I tell, you know, I do a podcast with Peter Jennings, who's a professional gambler and, you know, has won so much on, on DraftKings DFS platforms. And, you know, he says, you know, sometimes he'll, he'll put it, he asked me if I use like, uh, there's ways of, of sort of putting it. You say, okay, well, I like Rory. I want to have Rory on 40% of my teams and I want to have JT on 30% of my teams and I want Xander on 20%. And basically the computer will do it for you. And I said, I would never do that. I don't care how many lineups I'm doing because that takes away the enjoyment level. Uh, yes, I want to win money. We all want to win money, but I want to have fun. You know, it's it's fun for me to make these lineups. And so, long long story short, this is um, the PGA Tour has sort of understood that. Okay, well, this is yes, people are putting money into it. Yes, they can win big money, but it's also just fantasy. It's not straight betting, and that was kind of their way of getting into the betting marketplace. And now they just announced a deal a few days ago with uh, the DraftKings Sportsbook. And so they're uh, very obviously all in. They see the advantages. Like I said, there's going to be uh, very direct profit from this. There's going to be very indirect profit from this. But uh, either way, I think it's going to be a very good thing in the long run for the PGA Tour and uh, and, and still for the European Tour, which has thrived on this for a long time. And um, I, I think tours like that, European Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, those are only going to continue growing as well because uh, once you get a little taste of the action, all of a sudden you're saying, "Well, now I'm, you know, now I want to check out the Hero Open, uh, you know, at the Forest of Arden and see what this is all about." And <laughs> you know, I, I think that people who initially said, hey, "You know, I, I only want Tiger, I only watch the Masters, I only watch this," well, now I'm going to get into gambling. Well, now I'm getting really into it. Now, okay, where where can I get my next piece? Where can I get a little action? Where can I get a little taste? And you know, so I, I think they kind of start expanding to the other tours and the other players. And uh, I think it's good for the game as a whole. I really do. And, and I tell people all the time, and I, I say this on our, on our show every Wednesday, I say this on our, uh, our podcast all the time. Say, you don't need to be you know, taking out a second mortgage and gambling to have fun with it. I said, I, I don't care if you bet a dollar every week on a long shot to win and see what happens. And if you lose your dollar, who cares? And if you happen to hit a long shot at some point, awesome. And, you know, this you can this can be fun. You know, we're not condoning anybody, you know, losing their house over uh, the WGC FedEx St. Jude Invitational. That, that is not recommended. That's not what we're trying to do here. It's just, hey, become a little more invested, become a little more engaged in what's going on. Make it more fun if you're going to sit around and watch on the weekend and, you know, and, and use the monetary value that makes you comfortable. I mean, it's very much like, what we talked about with Phil Mickelson earlier. Well, Phil says, you know, hey, let's go out and play a little game. It's enough to keep you interested, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. That's a very good way of looking at whether you're doing betting or DFS or any kind of fancy or pools. Enough to keep you interested, but not enough to make you uncomfortable. And that's the thing. I think that the PJ Tour are very sensitive about. They know that addiction's a massive problem, and they didn't want to encourage gambling because people can become addicted. At the end of the day, these people are getting addicted to betting. They're going to get addicted to something else, regardless of whether the PJ Tour shove it down their faces, right? I don't think they're going to go all in and make it the only thing they talk about. I think that people are going to get 
you know, little snippets here and there now of gambling. And if they really want to pay attention, they come and see you guys. They come and listen to the podcast every week and get the information they need. And that was interesting, the point you made there, that every beat writer thinks they're writing gambling stuff anyway, even if they're not. Because, you know, we're looking at player interviews to see what they think about the course next week. We're seeing if they've mentioned a correlating course. Uh, you know, we've been, last week in the, the podcast, we were digging at the Forest of Arden. They haven't played there since 2005. And yep. we were looking at, who, what course could they have possibly played that would have any sort of relation to this? And you come up to the Qatar Masters, you come up to China and you go, I have no idea why, because the golf course doesn't look the same, but these players play well here and they're going to play well this week. And then that gets you so invested. And I, I wouldn't watch the Hero Open if I wasn't talking about it on a podcast. I've absolutely no interest in it. I wouldn't watch the Corn Ferry Saw if I hadn't had a bet on it. Um, you know, well, now I do because I speak to these guys in interviews, but before that, I, I would have no interest in it. And as you say, people are becoming more sophisticated in the writing and the, and the picks. You know, every week I would read uh, a journalistic piece and it would say, like, uh, especially at major times, I'd say, oh, who's your pick to win the Masters? And they wouldn't put an, they wouldn't put an odds next to it, but they'd go, Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Bubba Watson. And yeah. there, wouldn't be this, there wouldn't be this guy that's gone, right, well, actually... This guy played his college golf 10 minutes down the road. Um, he's played really well at other similarly designed tracks, other pars that, that lead that, you know, they've got to play well on the par fours. There's all this information. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, actually, it's not a massive surprise that, that Daniel Berger played really well on his debut and finished tied 10th. That, that it does make such a more sophisticated way of getting involved in golf when everyone considers it a really unsophisticated, un, unattractive piece, if, if you know what I mean there, that, you know, actually, mm-hmm. you're actually more engaged and more involved than people expect you to be. Some people think you're just a, a degenerate that puts $10 on someone to win and, and that's it. But when you actually break it down, you're paying so much attention, you're diving into so much detail, and you should be almost admired that you've gone to that much effort to find these little snippets of information. People, I think, are so much smarter about what they're watching, at least, you know, in our little corner of the world. I, I don't know if if people are smarter about everything they're watching on TV all the time and everything there that's going on in the world, but at least in golf, I think there's a large percentage of people who are so much smarter about what they're watching right now than they were ever before. Because I mean, quite frankly, I, I used to make lists. I said it earlier where I would, you know, okay, I'd rank the field for the masters. You know, I'm sure the 2006 masters, I ranked the entire field for ESPN.com. (laughs) <laughs> and what did I use as my baseline and my analysis? It was, uh, I don't know, I think this guy's going to play well. And so I'd put him up near the top, and this guy, well, I don't really think he's going to play that good. And so I put him down near the bottom. And there was no sort of, you know, basis for much. I mean, other than, okay, well, this guy usually plays well at Augusta, and, yeah, this guy's played pretty well lately. But, you know, there there wasn't the analytical data that we have now. And so now – you're right. It's become very sophisticated. I think there's more pressure on us who do this for a living to at least bring some sophistication to it. And you have to bring some knowledge to it. I think you'll be found out very quickly if you don't understand kind of what's going on and what you're talking about. That doesn't necessarily mean getting things right. I, I've struggled with this, Tom, because I, I went to my boss, Chad Millman, before I took this job two and a half years ago. And I said, what if I'm not good at like you know, picking winners. I said, that, you know, you're, you're basically hiring me for a gambling advice company and, um, and and you're asking me to, you know, give people advice. What if my advice is terrible? Like, are you going to fire me in a few months? Like, what? how does this work? And he said, 
I don't necessarily care about your record. I just want to make sure as long as you're giving people a reason for why you like this pick, why you don't like that pick, then that's all I'm asking for. And, and I've used that as a guideline. And I, I don't know that any of us are good at picking winners. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that there, there are certain people out there and certain shows and podcasts and, and you know, other areas of, uh, of the gambling community where, okay, you know, if we list 120 players in the 150-man field in, in, you know, throughout our content all week, well, next week one of them is going to win and we'll be able to tout the fact that we were able to pick a winner. A winner. So <laughs> I, I've, I, I, I very much tried to stay away from that where, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you a handful of names and here's the guys that I like and I'm going to try to remain consistent on that where, you know, so I'm not going to go, I'm not going to write a preview and say I like player X and then go on a podcast and say my favorite pick is player Y and then go on a show and say my favorite pick is player Z. I, I try to remain consistent and what's going to happen is, when you remain consistent like that and you get it wrong, you're going to be consistently wrong. And, and again, it's uh, I tell people all the time, you know, I, I put my record publicly on the Action Network app and people can see it. And, uh, and, and it's negative. And I said, you know, if you understand golf betting at some point, I'll pick two winners in a row and all of a sudden it'll be positive. I mean, it's just it, it doesn't take that much to turn things around, but it's very hard to do. And, and again, I think that as long as you're giving people a reason to think about those picks, then you're doing it for the right reasons. And, you know, I, the, the two things I don't like are, you know, hey, pick this guy just because I said so. And, hey, here's 100 guys in the field. I like all of them. You should pick them. And then touting their 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 success rate afterwards uh, and how good they are at it. If Basically, I found, Tom, that if you're in the – golf betting advice community and you're telling people how great you are at it all the time then you're probably lying <laughs> yeah you shouldn't have to should you and that and that's the thing is and it's really important that you say there that you know there's going to be people on the internet i'm sure as a personality like yourself with with a huge following on social media when you don't pick the person that wins they're going to go you suck at golf picking you cannot pick a winner to save your life you're you're a negative um and and i got it one you know there was one year where i backed brent seneca for a several tournaments and someone tweeted and he was like if brent seneca told you to jump off a bridge would you follow him and i was like you're not um, you're not understanding why i'm picking him i'm giving you i've told you I've not just said you pick Brant Seneca. I've given you 25 reasons to pick Brant Seneca. I've told you he links to the course history. I've told you he's past form. I've told you he's coming in this week. I've told you he's changed coach. I've told you he's changed putter. You know, all these sort of things, all these intricacies that go into it. And like you say, if you can give reasons behind your picks, then if they're wrong, they're wrong. People have to make an informed decision. You know, so if you said to me next week, I don't know, Justin Thomas is going to win the PGA, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that Justin Thomas is going to have a great chance of winning the PGA Championship. But what is the difference between you picking Justin Thomas over Rory McIlroy or picking Justin Thomas over Brooks Koepka or, you know, Dustin Johnson? You know, and they're, they're the things that people want to hear about. Now, you know, Justin Thomas has won a PGA in the past, so it's not it's no big secret as to how he's going to win. Um, you know, he's, he's won already this season. That's a big indicator in the major championships, things like that. But... You know, it's about going into real detail, and it's easier sometimes in the in the written form because otherwise you can get into two-hour shows talking about it. Um, whereas I just spend seven hours writing an article, and then you only read it for ten minutes. That's fine, but um, you know, there, there is so many intricacies into it, and that's why I think that it should be welcomed. Because, like you say, that when people are 
are worrying about whether they're going to get six or six players through to cut on a, on a Friday. They care so much more about that PGA Tour leaderboard than they ever have before. What's the cut line? You know, 10 years ago, no one cared what the cut line was on the PGA Tour, and they only cared about the top five players. Oh, now, the cut line like... <laughs> questions. Oh, I get them Thursday morning. What's the cut going to be this week? I, I, I don't know. Like, I just woke up. What are you, what are you talking about? Changes, it changes every week. It changes every, <laughs> every hour. Yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy. And, uh, Obviously, you're going to do some shows next week on your PGA Championship, but this is the thing as well. You can't write an article at the start of the week on how the FedEx St. Jude's going to go and then switch off until the final round when you've got to give your interview. You're going to have to track it all week now to see who's been you know, hitting the best amount of greens, who's hit strokes gained approach. Every day, you're going to have to work on that. And no one realises that on Monday, you've taken all that into stock um, before making your picks. Um, I know that you probably had a pick in mind on Wednesday for the, the PGA next week that's probably changed because of what they're doing Thursday and Friday. I mean, we all were sitting there going, is Brooks really hurt? And then all of a sudden he goes out and shoots the lights out yesterday. Uh, but there was a clue last week that he had his best ball striking round since last year's PGA uh, before missing the cut. So if you look into it and you see those uh, intricacies, it's really, it really does, I think, add an extra layer of enjoyment into the game that people so for so long have looked down on especially in your country yeah absolutely and i think that yeah the it's it's funny you know the the people who say they're against science and, and against you know certain things that uh can help cure the world of, of what's going on right now and yet uh so so deeply look into the analytics of golf ball striking and <laughs> uh and basing their bets on it so uh that's a little ironic uh, the other part uh, that that you know i want to react to tom's that uh how much do people love the fact that, okay, I'm going to go out, I'm going to read all, all the content out there. I'm going to read, like, who I should pick. And if I pick the guy and he wins, man, I've done a great job of looking at the content, figuring out which what made the most sense to me, and I picked that guy and he won. I've done a great job as a better, as a fan, as a spectator of figuring that out. And then if I read all the content... And I've, you know, picked this one guy and I've, you know, I've, I've read everything that Tom said, Tom written, wrote and, and said on his podcast and everything that Jason did. And I picked this guy and it doesn't happen. And he misses the cut. Ah, oh, those guys got me on, you know, the wrong guy. It's their fault. So everyone <laughs> wants to take credit for the good stuff and, and lay blame for the, for the bad stuff that doesn't go right. And I, I'm perfectly fine with uh, shouldering all that blame. I, I think you kind of have to be in this business, but I just always think it's funny that, um, that we very rarely get thanked for the good picks and very often get blamed for the bad picks. And yeah, that's okay. It's part of the job. Yeah. But that's the thing is instead of, you know, it's not only smarter hosts and smarter content creators, you have to be a smarter, better. You have to take that information. And if you tell, if you give me 10 reasons why Justin Thomas is going to win next week and I disagree with them, I'm not going to bet him just because you told me to. I'm not going to go right with Jay. But some people will back blindly. They'll go, okay, well, Jason said that these are the five people he's going to pick and I'm just going to bet them. Well, no, you need to look to why Jason has said that because if you then get to the end of the week and it hasn't worked out for you, you've only got yourself to blame if you've not if you've not understood why it was that got him to that decision. And I think there's just so much, there's so many layers to this that people don't realise until it becomes a more publicly and widely accepted thing, across, especially across the United States. Yeah, and then there are those who basically read nothing, pay attention to nothing, only have a very small working knowledge of what's going on in the game, basically look at their at their betting site on Wednesday night, see, Brooks Kepka, isn't he good? He, like, wins the majors all the time. He's 35-1. to 1? 
yeah, okay, I'll bet on him. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he jumps out to a lead. They're like, man, that seemed easy. Like, what, yeah, I'm what, good at what this, are you, yeah. you guys doing? <laughs> like, uh, you know, I, I think there there's definitely something into just, you know, like, hey, like, you know, we can tend to overanalyze. And I think there's, you know, almost a race to, you know, try to like, okay, let me dig deep and try to find all these like really good stats. You know, hey, this guy's a momentum player. And so he's played well his last couple of events. And, you know, he tends to uh, play well in bunches. And so, you know, let's see if that works. And this guy does this. I think that sometimes it's just almost dumb luck where it's like, hey, I don't know. I, I looked at it, and I know that guy's good, and I know his price was, you know, not as low as it should have been. So I took him, and there you go. And you know, I've I've had a lot of friends who, you know, they they all of a sudden think they're smarter than I am about all this stuff because, <laughs> they, you know, they just happen to look at a guy and they said, you know, threw a dart and said, I'm going to take him this week, and the guy wins the golf tournament. I'm sitting there going, cool. Uh, I'm so happy for you. Great job. But yeah, but he spent 20 hours covering that all week, and, yeah. and it does happen. We see it, you know. There's a there's a great story. I won't name the people that bet him, and I won't even name the player. But he won the Masters at long odds, and and they were on him just based on the fact that okay, well, his world ranking was this, and he's ranked sort of like 50th in the field instead of 20th. Um, it's a price bet, and that you get a lot of those as well. As we talk about on our podcast, that okay, if you think someone's too long of an odds, regardless of form, regardless of suitability to course. You've got to go with your gut sometimes, and that's what these people do that don't don't overanalyze, right? They just go, okay, well, uh, you know, like you said, Brooks Koepka was 35 to one this week. Don't worry about the fact that he's had a bad knee for six months or however long it's been. Uh, let's just back him, and, and here he is. He's probably going to ride it out this week, and then he's probably going to go. He might even go back to back. We don't know, but he's certainly not going to be 35 to one next week. I know that much. Yeah, it's taken me time a long time to sort of understand value within the betting markets and. Yeah, obviously, I think a lot of people understand it now, but I, you know, I was coming from a place where I wasn't allowed to gamble on golf, uh, you know, as of two, two and a half years ago. And, you know, then going into not only am I allowed to do it, I'm encouraged to do it and I'm analyzing it. And so, you know, I read sort of some other stuff out there. I said, value, like, okay, there's value on this guy at 35 to one. Uh, I'm sitting there thinking there ain't no value on him if he doesn't win the golf tournament. There's only value (laughs) on one guy. And if that guy wins uh, and you're betting outright, then. Uh, you're going to win that bet. And it doesn't really matter if, you know, you find, well, this guy, he, he really should have been 25 to one, but he's listed at 35 to one. And, you know, but uh, if he comes in second, it doesn't really matter because you're not going to win the bet. So, uh, but I, I have come around and I've absolutely uh, figured out and learned that, you know, there, there's absolutely something to it. And, you know, you're, I, I would think that most of the people out there, if you're betting outrights, you're not betting one outright and just kind of, throwing that one dart every week that you're um, you're looking at those prices and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, Brooks kept a perfect example this week is uh, severely undervalued. And so let's, you know, let's hope he bounces back and, and, and let's see if he does. Yeah. We kind of, we kind of call it a term as value loser. So, uh, okay. He was 50s one this week and he's generally speaking a 25 to one player. He's out of form. Ricky Fowler springs to mind at the moment. I think that, you know, he's not been the player that he's been over the last five or six years. And uh, when you look at his odds, he's 45 to one next week. This is a player that's normally 20 to one for majors because he's so popular. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of sentiment in betting, isn't there? That, you know, 
the good guys are, are going to be lower odds because people like to bet them. Everyone's going to bet Tiger whether he's got one leg or not because it's Tiger Woods. Um, you know, Patrick Reed's never going to be the odds that maybe he should be um, because people just don't like him. You know, there is that sentiment factor to it as well. Um, everyone's going to look at Tony Finau. Can you back Tony Finau when he comes second so often? Well, let's give the guy a chance. He's only just turned 30. He's got plenty of years ahead of him. Yeah. I'm sure he'll prove down the line that he's going to win. This is all these sort of things that... And everyone will go, no, you can't back him. Brooks Koepka's going to win because he wins every major. Well, yeah, but the, the chances are he's not going to keep up that that rate because, uh, you know, he'd be on track to win as many majors as Jack Nicklaus did. Uh, it's one of the things they use in the, the stock market game where they, they talk about past performance is not an indicator of future results. And uh, that is uh, no truer anywhere than in the game of golf. And, you know, Brooks has almost proven us wrong over the last couple of years where, you know, I've had people do the same thing. It's sort of that dumb luck thing where they go, I don't know, it's a major, so I'm going to go with Brooks because he wins all of them. And I'm like, yeah, but he's he, he's already won three. He's not going to win a fourth one. I mean, it just doesn't happen that quickly. I mean, the law <laughs> of averages says that, you know, they, they he's just going to stop winning them. And then, of course, he goes and wins a fourth. And it's like, say, I told you. I mean, how easy was that? I picked Brooks. It was a major, and so he won. And, you know, I, I think that at some point, you know, um, you're right. Like, Ricky Fowler – is going to win a major. Uh, you know, I, I said this for 10 years about Sergio Garcia before he won the Masters. I said, Sergio's too good to finish his career without winning a major championship. It's going to happen at some point. It's just a matter of figuring out when and where that point is going to be. Tony Finau is going to win a major at some point. I think he's probably going to win another PGA Tour event before he does win a major championship. But I, I could honestly see it. I could honestly see him just going to Harding Park next week and playing really good golf and, and the course suiting him and just going out and having a, a great week and sort of uh, um, exercising all those demons that he's accumulated over the last couple of years and, and winning that golf tournament. And people say, well, I never saw that coming because Tony, he always finishes in second. He never gets it done in the clutch. It's like, well, um, you know, it's one of these things that I talk about all the time. I tell, uh, I do a, uh, a spot on Sirius XM here in the States on PGA Tour Radio with uh, Taylor Zarzer, my buddy who hosts the morning show. We do a, uh, a Monday morning segment every single week. And every week, and I tell him it should be sponsored because we have the same question every week. Every <laughs> week it's, you know, player X who just finished in second or third or fourth and had a good chance to win and didn't win. How should he feel today and how should he react to uh, such a close call? And my answer to it every week is, Every experience of getting into contention and not winning is viewed as a somewhat negative experience by the general public and viewed as a positive experience by that player. And sure, I, I'm not saying that Tony Finau is happy about repeatedly getting close and not winning golf tournaments, but I'm telling you, at some point, because he's gotten to this point so many times and because he's had all these uh, close experiences, he is going to start winning. And, you know, it happened... Happened with Padraig Harrington before he started winning majors. Happened with Phil Mickelson before he started winning majors. I mean, this is just not everybody can be Tiger or Rory or Jordan Spieth where right off the bat, when they're 21, 22 years old, they start winning major championships. Usually it's, you know, you've got to deal with those experiences, get through them. And at some point, hey, I've used those experiences to my benefit and it's been advantageous to have finished in second, third, fourth, fifth place at some big events, and, and then they can move on and start winning golf tournaments. And so um, those who 
look at what has happened already and say, well, Brooks Koepka always wins, so he's going to win again. Or, you know, uh, uh, John Romp can't win because he hasn't won a major yet, which is the most ridiculous thing that I think some people are still talking about. Um, I, I think they have to understand that just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it's never going to happen. We'd, we'd never have a first-time <laughs> major champion. No one would ever win a major if it was only, well, he hasn't won a major before. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple logic here. I think the best one at the moment, best case of that is um, Fuzzy Zeller at the Masters is the last debutant to win there, isn't he? It's 1979. Yeah. And every year you go, well, you can't back that person because he's a debutant. Well, Jordan Spieth nearly won it on his debut. Jonas Blixt was in the contention on his debut. <laughs> like, there's guys out there. Tony Finau rolled his ankle before his first major and still was in contention. I mean, um, Smiley Coffin was in the final pairing <laughs> at his first one. Smiley can do it. Anybody can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what I mean. Um, I actually think that Tony Finau is just as likely to win a major as he is another PJ Tour event. I don't know. For me, personally, I don't know if it's a little bit of uh, he's so relaxed that his how relaxed he is gets into how good he is, but also is his little demon that... If he was a little bit pent up and worked up about it, he'd maybe get over the line. But I'm just speculating. I'm I'm not there. I don't see him week to week. He might be really down on himself for free. I don't know. Um, but I just think that's it. And not all seconds are the same. That second in Phoenix, where, okay, he made a, a questionable decision on 17 not to just drive for it and go for it. But Webb Simpson still had to clutch up and birdie 18 and the first regulation hole as well, to uh, playoff hole as well, to actually even take the tournament away from him. So people have short memories. People just want to dismiss people very quickly. Um, and that's the sort of things you've got to look at into next week. And just before I let you go, Jason, um, I know you're going to do a whole ton of content on this next week, but is there a player that you think you've got in mind for next week that, that you really like at uh, any sort of fancy odds, or is, do you think it's a favourites event? Yeah, so as we're talking right now, I, we should state that it's Friday morning here in the States. Uh, last night, Thursday night, I really sat down and just started, like, just jotting down some names. And, you know, they're they're not names from way off the radar or anything like that. But uh, I, I think that John Rahm is certainly a guy who's uh, who's playing well, uh, not off to a great start in Memphis this week, but I think he's certainly capable of going out there and winning a first major. So, you know, no surprise there. Patrick Cantley is a guy that's been on my radar for a long time. He is, uh, according to the odds makers, he's probably the most um, regularly undervalued player there is uh, as far as uh, – He's just, you know, kind of goes about his business. He doesn't win a whole lot, so that's kind of kept his price uh, from from dipping too much. But um, such a talented player, so there's always a lot of value on Cantley. And then Colin Morikawa has talked about playing this course, I think, more than a dozen times already in his life. Uh, he's from California, and so you know, I, I think it should be a ball strikers golf course. And uh, he he is one of the game's premier ball strikers already at the young age of 23. So those. Those are a few names. I, I don't know exactly who's going to be at the top of my list yet. It's going to be a weekend where I really sit around and, and start to look at some data and start to look at how they're playing this week and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, those are some names. And, again, nobody that's, that's jumping out is a, a complete surprise, but uh, I'll start looking at it. I tend to favor some of the West Coast guys in a, uh, a West Coast major like that. Max Homa is a guy who's played well recently and, you know, I, I don't know that he'll be at the top of my list, but I, I think that he'll be um, much higher than some other guys who are ranked higher than, than him in the world ranking. Um, Ryan Palmer is a guy that I've liked a lot this year, so uh, he could be the guy, a guy that's up there, at least as a little bit of a surprise. But, you know, it's 
very early still, Tom. I, I'm going to change my mind 18 different times before I go public with all my uh, my picks so far. <laughs> well, I think as well. And do you think that it will play any differently, being the fact that it's actually the first major of the year as opposed to, I know it changed last year to the second major as opposed to the last, but because you always used to get a sort of a surprise winner in this tournament every now and then because it was right at the tail end of the season. There'd been the playoffs to look forward to, whereas now it's going to be the first time all the players are sharp. They've had a, a WGC event beforehand. Do you think it's going to play massively differently i know they played a, a wgc here in 2015 so there's there's sort of that to look at as well do you think that there's anything in that at all you know it feels feels like before every major championship we go man this could be the one sunday afternoon it's gonna be tiger it's gonna be rory it's gonna be jt it's gonna be like the best of the best of the best are gonna be out there on the leaderboard you look at how they're playing you look at this you look at that and of course it's never you know it's always some semblance of those guys but not all of them and, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to regret saying this, and, and I'm sure it's not going to come true because it never does come true. But I do think the fact that there hasn't been a major championship in the last 13 months is going to leave a lot of these guys sort of a little hungrier for this one. And I, I, I just don't see a player, you know, certainly there will be a few players in contention who we probably wouldn't expect. But I, I just don't see um, a winner coming out of, you know, outside of the top, say, 30 in the world or something like that. I, I just don't think the winner is going to be a guy who isn't considered an elite-level player. I really think that this is going to be one that uh, plays towards the biggest names. If you look at it, I mean, there's not a whole lot of data to go on, but uh, back when there was a WGC here in 2005, Tiger Woods won at the President's Cup in 2009. Uh, I was there for that one, and if it had been a major championship, Tiger might have won by double digits that week. He went 5-0 and and only saw the 17th hole uh, once in those five matches. And then uh, the 2015 15 or 16 uh, 15, match yeah. play, 15, yeah, okay. Uh, Rory McIlroy, of course, won it. So, I mean, you, you look at it, and the best of the best have won at Harding Park. It's a very small sample size, but uh, I would find it hard to believe that someone is going to jump out of nowhere to win the first major in more than a year. That sounds good to me. But look, um, you know, just uh, to, to reiterate, you're going to be covering all of it over the next sort of, uh, I don't know when your first show is going to come out on it, whether it's uh, Monday or Tuesday or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, just give us an idea of what you're going to be throwing up over the next week or so. <laughs> I've got so much coming up, Tom. I, you know, <laughs> in addition, okay, so we've got all the usual written content plus some stuff. Uh, by the way, this piece, I've alluded to it a few times that, you know, the silly, stupid, maybe funny piece. I have looked at players' hats. And I've looked at the sponsor. <laughs> I broke down sponsors, players' hats, and how that correlates to how many major championships they've won. Um, it's a very, very deep analytical piece that means absolutely nothing, and you shouldn't uh, take it for gospel. But I think it's kind of fun. So, um, in any case, uh, uh, I, so I'll, I will have a ton of written content. We usually tape our podcast on Monday. It's available starting on Tuesday on Apple iTunes and wherever else you. Uh, download your podcast. It's the Action Network podcast. We do a show called The Gimme every Wednesday night that's supported and promoted by the PGA Tour and runs through their social channels and our social channels. And then next week, I'm also doing live radio for the broadcast uh, for PGA Championship Radio on Sirius XM and Westwood One, at least here in the States. I'm not sure if you guys get that uh, over in the UK as well, but I will be doing that from our Orlando Broadcast Center. Uh, 
Very interesting. I'm a, a member of a club uh, called West Orange Country Club. It's about five minutes from my house. I spend uh, just about more time there than I do at my actual home. Um, got so many friends there, play a ton of golf over there, just go there and hang out. And so our Orlando Broadcast Center will be at the club. We're turning the dining room there into a <laughs> media center for next week. Not just for me. We've probably got six to eight different uh, different radio hosts that are going to be there. And we're, we are live uh, doing doing radio coverage uh, from um, from that uh, Orlando broadcast location, three thousand miles away from Harding Park, and I'm going to be doing uh, post round interviews for the uh, the live broadcast coverage. So you know, it's as I mentioned earlier, yeah, Rory shoots sixty six in the first round, and I'm going to be sitting there, uh, you know, about about a hundred yards from the first tee at my club looking at a Zoom call of Rory McIlroy and asking him about his 66 that day, which is uh, <laughs> pretty ridiculous and pretty amazing both at the same time. Absolutely. Look, it sounds like you're not going to see much of your family next week. Uh, so they're, they're going to get used to you being missing from the house. And, uh, Lucky look, them. I really appreciate you coming on. I know you've got a busy schedule ahead, um, but it's been a great to get insight into not only what you're doing now, but what you've done over the past years. It's great to hear some stories about Phil Mickelson and things like that. And, uh, you know, I really like to keep in touch and uh, keep an eye out on all the content you've got coming your way. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I'm sure I talked way too much and uh, hopefully you can edit this down, but I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with me. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jason. 